Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. James Kitely and you may remember me as the co-host of the Wings Over Australia uh, series of podcasts as part of uh, Dave's Wings Over New Zealand series. That series was a wonderful experience for both of us I think and very uh, interesting to cover the ground that we did um, but as with a lot of these things there was a lot more to it um, both before after and around and one of those bits was uh, Dave very kindly uh, went and interviewed um, the very notable uh, New Zealand restorer Don Sabritsky um, on my request about uh, Don's Airspeed Oxford project. This Airspeed Oxford uh, Mark II, um, serial number NZ1332 for those keeping track of these things, um, is a fascinating story and uh, Don has uh, done what I think is a pretty unusual, possibly effectively unique uh, recovery and restoration job with this machine. I've been working on uh, writing up and uh, exploring aircraft preservation for really 30 odd years now around the world and um, I've seen a lot of very interesting stories go by. Sometimes the stories grow in the telling, as we all know. Um, you know, some other cases, and this is one of them, um, the actual story itself is far more interesting and uh, complex than you might actually get from a normal uh, article in a magazine or a passing mention in a sort of summary or whatever. Um, Don was the man on the spot and uh, from the actual restoration, from the recovery of this aircraft and through, uh, again, a rather unusual and, again, possibly unique uh, approach to restoration restoring the aircraft, um, which is one of the reasons I was very keen uh, to ask Dave uh, to see if he could interview Don about this. Those that know Don, and there's quite a lot of the uh, Wings Over New Zealand forum members who do know Don as a host of uh, some of the uh, uh, meets, um, he's a wonderful, wonderful raconteur, um, has a phenomenal memory, and um, is really good at calling lots of those sort of details that are easy to forget or overlook to mind uh, in an in a, uh, interview like this. So uh, it's a great little story. Um, it's told by the man who's on the spot, and it's well worth listening to. But the other thing is I think it's uh, important too, and, and why, I, why I think that, is, that it is important is because, well... There's a lot of, quite rightly, attention paid to national collections and the sort of uh, efforts they go to to represent very important stuff um, for nations and obviously in New Zealand, um, places like Te Papa um, and uh, uh, in Auckland, the collection um, in the memorial there um, and so on. And obviously all the way up to places like the British Museum, the Smithsonian around the world. Unfortunately, they got off, often get a lot of the publicity and the PR about this uh, work, um, and that's great, and they deserve it in a lot of cases, but sometimes uh, the private individual's efforts are overlooked in favour of the more uh, high-profile and national collection-type stuff. This uh, Oxford rebuild that uh, Don and, and his family and some uh, colleagues, friends, but mostly he and his family, have been rebuilding, uh, is unusual in that what they actually have is, as he says, an aircraft that's almost been taken down uh, in structure to a matchstick or 
um, small chunk pieces and rather than refabricating you know using pieces of patterns they're actually putting the original airframe together and he touches on how they changed their thinking very early on in the process which I think is a, a really um, uh, good point to make and an important one that they started off in one direction looking to perhaps build an airworthy one based on the some of the, the parts but with a, effectively a new wooden structure um, and they realized that what they had was actually more important than that there's lots of little touches like that but I think that's one of the reasons that I think this is an important um, restoration in global terms not just in New Zealand um, because this is going to be when they finish it um, probably the most original uh, airspeed oxid and one of the most original aircraft from World War Two because almost all of it um, is the original airframe. It's been glued back together or, or put back together uh, where appropriate. Some of the bits um, are confusing because they appear to have come off different aircraft. Was that in service? Was that when the aircraft was sold? But it's original. And those bits that are not original uh, are very evidently not original um, in the overall airframe. So you can tell what is 1940s and what is the early 2000s. So um, I think that Don and, and uh, his, uh, his helpers are doing really a world-class uh, job and something that should be more widely known and more widely recognised, which is why we're very pleased to be able to release this recording to the public. It's a unique insight to how recovery really works um, uh, and actual how the restoration really works and recorded on the spot by Dave um, where the aircraft actually is. There's some little bits in there that are very intriguing we may never know the answer one really big question is why did the gentleman who um, uh, obtained this aircraft uh, do what he did take it down to the pieces that he did in the way he did um, and Don has put together a, a very I think convincing hypothesis which is somewhat intriguing and uh, and uh, somewhat odd um, and I think it's perfectly possible we don't know there may be another explanation but whatever the explanation is um, it's not an ordinary story and so uh, I think I think Don's probably got it right. You may have another idea. Um, and uh, if you do, uh, please let Dave know through the usual uh, routes. Um, so I think I've gone on a bit. It's, uh, I was very pleased to be able to introduce this particular um, uh, recording. Um, and I'm really pleased that we were able to make it public because, again, as I say, this is a story that you don't otherwise um, get to hear. So... A story of a recovery and a rebuild and making sure that something is as original as possible from the man who is on the spot and doing it. Thanks very much. Over to you, Dave and Don. We'll just start off with right at the beginning of yep. uh, how it all came about. Yeah. Okay, what amounts to and what started it all is I had a visit from one of the Confederate guys, um, Derry Flat Confederate Air Force, who walked in the door with a letter from an old bloke in Wanganui whose neighbour was trying to get rid of the remains of an old aeroplane. The inference was there was an engine. But the way the letter was written, I was handed it, there was a story there and I just had one of those feelings, I've been down this road a hundred times before, normally, or where there's smoke, there's fire, and I just had a feeling about it because I'd never heard of this particular aeroplane. Right. I chased Oxford crashes, I checked, I um, followed up on Oxford burials and you know where farmers had got them to, like the one in Martin, yep. 2156, which I helped Ken Jacobs take apart. 
So this one was one that I had came out of left field. So I thought I'm going to follow up on this one. So raced off down to Wanganui, met the old guy that sent the letter. He took me around to the man's house. Um, he it was all good. It fell into place quite nicely. He just wanted to get rid of it. He wanted to sell it. I gave him the money he wanted plus because I realised its significance. But even at that stage, when I looked into the garage and the outhouse, I thought, man, that's the best windscreen unit I've seen off an Oxford. And hey, that nose cone's not bad either. Yep. Thinking this guy is, he's kept a few really good bits that haven't been vandalised. Anyhow, over the next two or three hours, as we cleaned this shed out, more and more of this Oxford came out. And I said to Michael, Steve, my two sons, I said, it's a shame we haven't got a registration. And with that, Mike slipped the side of the rear fuselage down out of the rafters with NZ1332 written on it, yep. which was rather answered the question. Steve got handed a flare shoot with one live possum that vacated like a uh, cannon shot. <laughs> I don't know who got the biggest fright. <laughs> so we spent the day loading all this onto a trailer and into the back of the car. And the only way I can describe it is probably the biggest and most enjoyable jigsaw I ever had the privilege of sorting out. Right. And then on Getting it back to Auckland, there was two trips, but the first trip was 90% of it. We were still trying to talk the old boy out of significant parts of it, screwed to his bicycle and other parts in the house, yep, yep. which he came through with, except for the parachute pack on the bicycle. He needed that for his groceries, but uh, <laughs> so we let him have that. I still worry about what might have come off the trailer on the way north, but I don't think so. But I often wonder with the different little bits and pieces of it. Yeah. On day two of laying it out as best we could when it arrived here in the paddock outside and in the shed, fortunately the aeroplane was colour coded. The internal greens were fuselage, the one wing was white internally, one wing and tailplane was silver okay. internally. Okay. So we started to break the big pile of kindling down into different um, lots and then slowly then went through literally finding I won't say matchstick sizes but little pieces of timber to match up to a glue line Right. so it, we realised then just how significant the aeroplane was Bunny Darby said to me in 1965 when I joined Motet I said Mr Darby what are the chances of an airspeed Oxford? And his actual words to me were, they've all gone, we can only hope someone put one in a shed somewhere. Right. And it was quite amazing, and I thought as we laid this thing out, Charles got it right again. Yeah. He was right, and that's how it all happened. Anyhow, moving back to the aeroplane. The old guy, I actually, I was that excited, I turned around and I drove back down to Wanganui to talk to him and try and get some sort of, what was he up to, why did he do this? Um, 
he was very vague and I'm talking about a very frail old man now and he actually died apparently a few months after my second trip down to see him. I'd showed him what I'd done and what I'd put together. He was surprised and couldn't understand why I'd bother putting one back together, but I wasn't gonna couldn't explain to him. Yep. But yeah, come away with there with nice thoughts, pleasant memories, knowing full well there had to be other bits of the aeroplane, but anyhow. So at that point I'll change the story a little bit and jump now. One of the Air Force guys I knew up in Auckland, I rung him to see if I could overnight at his place in Wanganui. And he made subsequent trips back to the house after the guy had died. Um, His daughter had taken over the house. And she was brilliant because as she was cleaning up and tidying, and this went over the next two years, if she found anything that looked like it could have been off the aeroplane, she had a little cart and put aside, and Murray Shaw would call on her, and sure as hell, you know, we're laying out bits of the fin, for instance, no top rudder hinge. What a shame. Yep. Oh, well, we just have to, have to make it. Yep. Three months later on one of Murray's trips north, there's the top rudder hinge with other miscellaneous bits that, and it just went on like that. Well, it just kept turning up. It just kept turning up. She even went to the lengths of recovering one of the engine mounts from a farm in Waiuru the was used as part of a saw bench. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I thought, that's going to be mutilated, but hey, anyhow, the upshot it was, it's probably the best engine mount I came up with. Okay. The aeroplane was almost discovered many years earlier because he advertised and sold, I'll say advertised, I'm not sure how it happened, but he sold one of the engines off the aeroplane which was subsequently well located by Ken Jacobs. It was stored temporarily with Keith Trillo yep. and was destroyed in the same fire that destroyed the avian. Oh, right. But it would have been so close to being discovered that the other, the other engine was still there and the rest of the aeroplane. But anyhow, um, it, yeah, and that's how that happened. So... I guess the other engine mount went with the, the engine that subsequently got burnt. Yeah. The Th- aircraft had been inside the whole time the man had had it. And um, timber work. The only rot in the aeroplane, I'm sure, was rot that the aircraft got when sitting at Woodburn prior to sail. Okay. The back end of the cockpit floor, just places that you would expect that a wooden aeroplane full of water to rot. Yes. So there was actually not a lot of deterioration in the time it was in Wanganui, which, if I remember right, is around about 1946. Okay. Um, how he shipped it, really don't know. Um, he purchased the aeroplane from Omarka, towed it up the road to... Um, thinking, thinking. Uh, we'll have to come back to that. Yep. Uh, up towards the sounds, and then started quietly dismembering the aeroplane. Uh, there is photographic evidence. The effort that he put into taking it apart was quite incredible. The only problem was if only the man had had two spanners, because instead of undoing a fitting, he cut round it. Right. 
So I had to splice little repairs in where, like the tail blade for instance, he took it apart in situ on the aeroplane and then cut the spars because the other bit was still bolted to the fuselage. But each and every one of those ribs, riblets and skins came out of the pile along with the fin rudder elevators. And likewise to get the fuselage off the centre section, the rear attachment fitting, he cut with a wood saw around it. Whereas two spanners, dot the bolt out, it all comes off. Yep. So, yeah, absolutely incredible. At this stage of the game, we realised we had something significant. Most clever people would say, well, you should have rebuilt it to fly. Well, because we had a time capsule, the idea was to preserve as much of it as possible. And even at that stage, I never realised, not being a woodworker, what was possible. And it wasn't until we had duplicated the rear fuselage with all new materials, I then looked at the rear fuselage of the 1332 and thought, what do I do with this rubbish? And then glued two pieces together, and the two pieces turned into three, four, five, and I could not believe that this old pile of rubbish was actually strong enough to go back together with a few splices and the lingerin and skins. I never went back to the new rear fuselage. We just put the old aeroplane back together again. So there's non-airworthy splices in it, yep. but the idea was preservation of the original aeroplane. Yeah, now, I remember that you, you had been building that new fuselage because you were originally thinking of um, using it, weren't you? What happened to the, to the new rear fuselage? It's still there in the shed. Oh, okay. Slowly going black. But, um, yeah, we, with that fuselage, and that's where the thing about flying it came out, yep. we were going to and we're using good spruce and good materials, airworthy materials, and the idea then, if we're going to rebuild it, we will rebuild it to fly. Right. But that got dropped when the original aeroplane came back together. Right. And although it was going to take me 18 months, 18 years later, I'm still actually putting the original <laughs> back together. And I bet you're still saying it will take another 18 months to finish. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I have to say, I have become bored in it now, yep. because I know we've done it and there's only minor work to carry on. And I look at the 300 years work stacked up around me and it's now relegated somewhat, yeah. but still quietly moving forward. When the man bought the aeroplane for his 13 pound 12 and sixpence or whatever it was, he never got 1332's wings. On the way out the door, you got two main planes. Right. So I've got two main planes here off different aircraft which is a little shame in some respects, but um, that's what it is. The next part of the story is I then started to mop up known Oxford parts. Right. I have to go back to the original house because on one of Murray's last calls on the daughter, no, she could find nothing else, but she discovered that part of the aeroplane was a structure in the roof of the house, which explains why the main spars from the wings were missing. Ah. They are now part of the house right. in Whanganui. 
and she'd found this with the um, upstairs windows, which figured, because we could not understand, he'd gone to such lengths to recover this aeroplane, to dismantle this aeroplane, and the wing spars were missing. However, when the article was done in Wings magazine, Doug Thyme from Blenheim rang me and said, do you want a centre section spar? And I said, yes, Doug, I'd love a centre section spar. He said, well, you've lent on the bloody thing, so you might as well come and get it. <laughs> and I said, I've lent on it. He said, yes, me bloody workbench. Wow. So the spar is now in the aeroplane. The only thing that's wrong with the spar, there's three big nuggety holes where his vice was mounted. <laughs> <laughs> so the front main spar, the centre section, was never recovered. It must be in the house. So, like many things, it goes back over different projects. Oh dear, shame we didn't have. But I had enough information with all the ribs and all the bits and pieces that I sat down and said, we're going to have to build a main spar. And although it sounded terrible and it was sleepless nights, 80 hours later, I had a brand new spar, as per the drawings, sitting on two wooden horses. Right. Which I've got to say is like so many things with the old human nature... You build the problem up ahead of you, but actually when you realise you've got to do it, there was actually nothing to it. Right, right. I mean, it went together so easy, so quickly. I was then able to horse trade a set of outer main plane spars that were recovered by, um, once again, terrible on name, so you'll have to fill this in. The guy that wrote Missing... Oh, Chris Rudge. Chris Rudge. Chris Rudge, in his early days, recovered two wing spars from a property on Banks Peninsula, okay. which I find quite amusing because that's not far from where I was picking up Baffin bits, and I couldn't understand why the locals that was giving the Baffin stuff were giving Oxford fittings as well. Ah. So even Small World comes in there, yeah. the chances of that. But anyhow, I assumed that Chris Rudge had got those wings from... The aeroplanes had all disappeared into the Rangiora area, but no, this particular wing came from uh, the small township at the beginning of um, the main road out to Akaroa, basically in the bottom of the valley there. Well-known name, has been talked about recently. Is it Pigeon Bay? Uh, No, no, no. Pigeon Bay, you got over the top to get to. When you're going to Pigeon Bay, you drive round the southern side and there is a nice little township at the bottom of the climb. And that's where those wing spars came from. Okay. So those wing spars were then mirror imaged for the port wing. Chris was quite amazed when I told him recently on the phone, because he was telling me about his wing spars. I said, no, I ended up with them. He said, they were pretty bad. I said, yeah, but that's them. And all I did was splice new, new timber in where the um, bore had carried a lot of it off. Yep. Um, so no, they're good and uh, they live on. Great. Ted Packer from Christchurch had a beautiful propeller, a set of elevators and rudder, which I bought from him. Um, otherwise, apart from those outer wings and the parts I've mentioned, it's all thirteen thirty-two. Even down to some of the instruments were still in boxes under his bench. The unfortunate. Uh, the only really unfortunate item in the whole aeroplane was 
It's embarrassing, and I've tried to work out what he had in mind. I do not know. There's all sorts of theories, some of them borderline crazy and embarrassing. But he took one of everything apart, and one engine was pulled into a gazillion bits. The crankshaft was in the garden outside, the only thing of the aeroplane that was outside. But the best seven cylinders I think I've ever come across under his bench, but that engine was basically dismantled to the last nut and bolt and spread all around the place. So that engine was lost. But instrumentation-wise, even the wiring, when he was pulling the wiring out, he was rolling it up into rolls and throwing that in another box. So all these years later, I was able to unroll all that wiring (laughs) and put most of it back where it came from. Wow. So what was the actual motivation for him to dismantle it down to the last inch of material like that? Well, this comes into the embarrassing thing. So this is over to you whether you print it or not, because I don't know. We were and quite surprised that amongst all the cartons of timber and kindling, I'll call it, were multiple copies of the People's Voice, the communist newspaper of the day. Amongst those were summons to the Supreme Court for causing a disturbance in Wellington um, on a couple of occasions, and you think, now, what the hell is going on here? I find it embarrassing to say, but I think the boy was a communist, and stupid it may sound, the way he took everything apart, and then on some items down to every last stick, I wonder whether he was going to export it as a, I've got something you guys need to know about, but they would have laughed at him when they found out what aeroplane it is, or was. (laughs) But that's the only explanation I can come up with. The other astounding thing about it all is when I was talking to him, he was a very frail little old man with a whole outhouse full of kindling. Okay. Why it didn't go through the fireplace, I just can't work that out. Because he obviously had no interest in the history and the preservation when, when he couldn't believe that you would put it back together. So You're so right, but that was the reason I went back to see him. But yeah. he was, he was just, why would you do that? So my grin turned to a, oh, 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 well, all right, anyhow. <laughs> and um, yes, that was it. Can you, can you tell us the chap's name? Les Bergensen. It's still on the side of the aeroplane. I find it difficult to cover his initials, but obviously when he was when he bought it and when he was shipping it, it's not just on the side of the fuselage, it's on different engine cowls and so on, so it must have been loosely packed and railed, shipped to his house in Wanganui, and that is why through the historical society we didn't know of its existence in Wanganui. Um, and that's why it basically stayed uh, unknown. There were a few in the area, of which we tracked in the old Motat days, and came up with, I won't say zilch, because on reflection there was still stuff available, but we didn't realise its value. But there was, or this has been the mystery Oxford that shouldn't have been there. It was sold off from uh, Omaka, and 
obviously everyone assumed it died with all its brothers and sisters uh, in the back corner of the aerodrome. Wow. It's just an incredible story. And what you've done with it, putting it back together um, to an almost complete um, and completely original aircraft, there can't be anything else in the world that's quite like this. It'd be nice to think that. I love these sort of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I also find it absolutely incredible that these things happen and this happened. Yeah. But fortunately, through my experience with MOTAT, I realised its significance because there is a lots and lots of horror stories of what happened to these aeroplanes in that era. Right. And even when they did find, like in South Australia, they did have a surviving Oxford. Unfortunately, none. I don't want to step on people's toes, but I've been told by God that they sent the wrong team out. And instead of bringing the aeroplane home, they bought all the neat bits that they uh, could bust off it, which consisted of its engines, its windscreen unit, and left the rest laying in a paddock as a zillion bits of plywood blowing away in the wind, oh, no. which the farmer had not, uh, not much earlier rolled it out of the farm shed where it sat since the war. Wow. So I learned a lot out of that story. Yeah. So have you um, have you heard of any other barn finds like this? That um, I mean, I know there are aircraft found in barns and sheds, but anything like this where it's been completely disassembled and and found to come back together into an almost complete aircraft? No, no, no. You probably find that stories could be replicated, but in the early days when people did not realise what they were looking at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it was just that, um, well, I don't know how this happened. Now, why it ended up, how it ended up, one man handing the story on to another man that got to me, because I'll now stand up for myself and beat my skinny little chest and say, in some respects, I say this tongue-in-cheek, I'm glad it came to me because there's not very many people in the country would have been able to realise its significance. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, actually. If it had been to a big museum, they would have sent the wrong people up, they would have looked at it and said, what a lot of old crap, we don't want it, and driven away. Absolutely. And also, there wouldn't have been that many people who would have had the gumption to, just to go down and actually check it out um, on hearing basically almost a rumour, wasn't it? Because it came through the guy's neighbour via, was it Bill Bill, Bill Billings? Bill Billings, yep. and I was also approached by, um, oh, their leader down there, once again, my name the name's yeah. just dropped out. Uh, Alan Rail. Oh, yeah. Alan Rail was the guy that actually gave me the letter. Right. But, um, yeah, in actual fact, even they didn't realise significance. They said, you know, if there's any little trinkets they can hang on the wall, yep. uh, you know, they'd be quite pleased to get it. I said, yep, not a problem. Only trouble is there's no trinkets left over because it all went back on the aeroplane. Right. <laughs> and, of course, the, the Oxford itself was a very significant aircraft in New Zealand. It was the um, second most prolifically um, flown aircraft in the RNZF after the Corsair, I believe. Is it 202 or something? Two, uh, 299. Oh, 299, that's right. 299. One of my many failings in life is I cannot hold on to the academic. This is a sort of belated apology, but I had a woman write, write to me from Wangarei saying her father flew the aeroplane. Jim Hickey, the weatherman, his uh, father flew it. Yep. Um, all these have gone now, unfortunately, all these connections. Yeah. Uh, I had a few, a couple of old grim digs come out of the woodwork that 
I never recorded their name, but it's been a really, really brilliant journey. Absolutely. And there must have been probably dozens, if not getting into the hundreds of people who would have flown that aircraft in training. Um, and it was with one of the training schools, wasn't it? It wasn't on a, on a squadron. If you want to know that sort of thing, you've got to get a hold of Dave Homewood in Cambridge. <laughs> I'm not sure, Dave. I'm yeah. not sure. Apparently it pounded the circuit of Tyree, if, I'm, if I have that right. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I can say about the aeroplane, which for the historians and the people that know things, it is NZ-1332, which is supposedly a Mark II Oxford. Well, I'll tell you right here and now, it is a Mark I Oxford, but obviously in those days and the way things happen, it was built by Percival, and there are structural differences between the one and the two. The most noticeable being the different tail legs, and the Mark I has, I was going to say doubt, no, it's not, non-doughty tail leg. It's structural variation with the two aircraft this has got a mark one structure right so even down to the point where i've actually literally had to sit on Stu atkinson who has become the oxford expert and thump his head on the ground <laughs> to tell him there is no uh, outside power point on it to plug a power cart in of which he told me there is it goes right here and i would say to Stu, Stu, that is the original structure it's not bloody there. Right. So after about 15 attempts of showing me where the thing would have been and being able to show him on 15 attempts that it's basic old structure, this points to it being an early aeroplane. Right, okay. Where you literally hand-started one engine. I'm not sure how this goes now. Hand-started one engine which then used the power from the battery to turn the other engine. Okay. It was had no ground support um, adapter. So it is an early aeroplane, it is a Mark I. Yeah, technically, as per the paperwork, it's a Mark II. It is a Mark I, built by Percival Aircraft. Right, and it's got the turret as well, hasn't it? Now, this is a little bit of a grey area. Although I'm a purist, I have fitted the turret, and the difference between having a turret fitted and not having a turret fitted and these early aircraft was tearing off a strip of fabric and undoing four bolts and lifting the cover off and dropping the turret in. The structure for the turret is all original, it's all there. You literally just drop the turret in and bolt it down. And due to the fact that there's not an Oxford in the world at the moment that's got a turret fitted, I thought, the hell with it, we're going to drop a turret in it. Right, fair enough too. And there's plenty of Oxford turrets around. Yes, persons. yes. So it'd be good to see one with one. But it is a sensitive point. I am a purist. Yeah. But growing up with brass Oxford models, an Oxford wasn't an Oxford unless it had a turret. Exactly, exactly, yes. It's same as an Anson having helmet cowls. Yeah, true. So, yeah, I feel a little bad about that, but... Well, the Air Force Museum got the cover, so might all go around in a circle. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so um, tell us about where it's at at this stage, where the, uh, the restoration on the Oxford is at. 
basically just fitting out in the Bombay. I'm missing one main fuel tank. Um, finishing off little snippets on the port wing, uh, which I have been actually back into this season. Just little jobs that you sort of put off. I've been going back to because I've been mixing glue up for the baffin and all these. I hate wasting anything I then have some little jobs set up on the oxid wing that I could carry on with right. use the glue up and that's basically the level it's at this summer it's got to go outside for a photographic session with its wings on yeah that'd be awesome then the wings have to come back off and it comes back inside and then I've got to find somewhere where it goes to it needs to go to a good home I've watched other collectors I don't put myself in the collector's bracket because collectors are collectors. And if you're a collector, you keep the bit until you die. Right. I'm a collector restorer. The only thing I can hide behind, and I like the only way I can describe myself to anyone, is I take the impossible and put it into the probable yep. and hope that no one sends an ambulance for me and handcuffs until I've actually produced something that people can actually see, hey, we can do something like this. Right. But I do understand that at some stage, these aircraft have got to go to a good home. I want to be in a position where I can send them to the right place. And at the moment, the Oxford, I really don't know. There is a possibility, and I've talked this over a little, that if the building the original hangar at Hobsonville remains I can't see why some of my collection can't end up going there and going under some sort of umbrella even if it was the uh, New Zealand or the Auckland um, museum yes yep. um, where it could be looked after uh, without having to worry about a well-meaning enthusiast getting a hold of it and painting it pink or turning it into something their uncle might have flown. Right, yeah, yeah. Which might have another couple of engines or something, which yep. happens. Yep. So it's got to be protected. I don't know where I don't know where they will end up. But we do know that it'll all outlive us. And, uh, yeah. And that's only because of the work that you've put in over the years to rescue these aircraft and put them back together. Um, you've got some significant things here, and a lot of them are one-offs. Yes, yes. And I'd like to think if I didn't intercept them, they probably would never have seen the light of day. Yep, absolutely. The number one aeroplane in the, my brain at the moment is the Baffin. That's been brilliant. Even the story and the way it's coming together. Yep. The assistance from the RAF Museum, who um, within hours of someone cottoning on to it on the internet, they sent me copies of every manual they have. Parts, erection, repair... Uh, even down to the manual telling on the aircraft carrier what spares they'd need. Yep. Um, absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Fantastic. The people in Finland uh, sent drawings, structural drawings of most components. The, yeah, the only drawing they weren't able to send me was the general arrangement of the tailplane. The only, actually along these lines while I motor mouth, the other regret with the Baffin, many years ago, on one of my relic raids to Christchurch, I was in the Bexley scrapyard, and I was told there was a large wooden tailplane laying in the swamp. I'll call it swamp, because obviously it, 
it got wet from time to time. I had a cursory look, liberated all sorts of things out of the yard, which I can't go into because that's a whole new story again of what was in the Bexley scrapyard. The good side of the story, and having dealt with the guys at Rooker here for years, and being fleeced of my wages on a few parts, the guy that operated the Bexley scrapyard, when I'd got my little pile together, I then went and got him out of the offices and said, how much for that? And he looked at me hurt and says, is it of use to you? And I said, of course it is. He says, well, take it, son. Wow. (laughs) That's brilliant. So I always look forward to going to see the Bexley yard. And there was numerous stuff in there that, yeah, I can't list now, but I remember there was new Oxford stuff still still wrapped up in cotton bags, which I looked at and thought, well, shame I can't use any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so unbelievable, but yeah. So anyhow, the I went back to the man that told me about the tailplane. He said, yeah, no, it's definitely there, but I never, ever got back. Now... With the recovery of the Baffin, I'm sorry we've worked on into the Baffin now. That's all right. In the recovery of the Baffin, when Bunny, Darby and myself were getting the Ferry Gordon out of the Southern Alps, everything went well with the recovery and we actually ended up with a day or so to spare. So Bunny told me, let's go out to Little Pigeon Bay and see where the Baffin crashed. Now, I'm a bit grey on it now. Bunny may have been there before, I'm not sure, but either way, I was astounded to see major structural items up above the high water mark all these years later of the Baffin. Okay. I pleaded with Bunny in the early days, I need this project. Well, it took me another 30 years to get it off him, but I've got it. And the stories then that have come out of that recovery and the connections and whatever, if you could put them all back together, uh, another brilliant story. Yeah, yeah. And someone should save me, come out of the woodwork, like our man in Christchurch I talked about with the missing me book. Give me his name again. Uh, Mr. Rudge. Mr. Rudge. Chris said to me, Christ, recently when I was trying to uh, recover an Anson wheel I bought off him, a hundred years ago, much to my amazement he still had it, (laughs) he wanted to know about the Baffin and I explained it to him and he said, Don, there is a brilliant story that has to be told. And I said, Chris, someone else has got to write it. But he says, you don't have to. He says, you have its history, it went to sea on the HMS Glorious or whatever, the history's there, you've got the aeroplane, the history moves on, write it. Well, I'm not going to write it, but someone's got it. Well, I'll tell you what, Don, I'll come back at another stage when you're a bit further down the track and we'll sit down and record all this history. Yeah. And then we can write something up from there. All right. I get the impression, Dave, you're trying to get out of the place. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have been on the road for a couple of weeks and I do need to get home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, very good, Dave. All right. Well, if that's all right with you, we'll wrap that up at that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's fantastic. It's uh, That's the Oxford story yeah. nicely wrapped up. Yeah. And, and it's acknowledged... Where other bits come from? You yeah. know, they've got the Ted Packer, you've got bloody um, Doug Thyme, Doug's gone, Ted's probably gone. I don't know, I think he's still, he's in Blenheim now, I think. All right, yeah. all right. I've heard. Okay. Yeah. That'd be right, because I tried to track him in Christchurch and could find no mm. reference to him. Yeah. The only thing with this and that, what you kept touching on there, playing, you know, reading 
writing stories is getting it across to people that, um, well, you know, guys that come here, I say, you can't ever go back. If someone says, oh, shit, I've got a whatever, yeah. you've got to say, look, I want it. Yeah. Because yeah. you can never go back. And you end up with regrets. Yeah. Not following it up. You're still recording this? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you Hooker Hind stories, just for what it's worth, you can use as reference later on. Yep. But I'm not a religious man, and I'm not a smart man, but there is aspects every now and again where I stand there quietly and think to myself, what are the chances of that? And this story could be told, well, I'll say it a dozen times over, but the most spectacular one was... I was told there was an old gentleman or a gentleman in Palmerston North that may have some bits. On one of my relic raids to Palmerston North, I called in on him. I'd, I'd rung him. I called in on him. He looked at me and said, look, I have a customer. Um, I'll go around the corner. There's an old guy building a steam car. Go and talk to him. I'll come and see you when, I've, when I can. Yep. I walked out of his shop, round the corner, introduced myself to the old guy rebuilding the steam car, was blown away by the workmanship and what he was doing. There's another story in this, I won't go there, but there is a story. Yeah. The poor old guy died, and the team got together and finished his car for whatever the big rally was going in. Right. However, I'm talking to him. He does not know me, except that I've told him that I'm into old aeroplanes. He said, oh, look, before you go... He rattled in under his workbench and pulled out a hawker hind rudder bar complete with pedals and says, here, he said, I was a linesman putting in the Kumu to Auckland line and there was this old hawker hind wreckage laying in the yard. He said, the guy said, I'll oh, take what you like off it. Handed me the rudder bar. I said, it's a hawker hind rudder bar. I've actually got most of the aeroplane. <laughs> That's one of the ones I'm rebuilding. That's brilliant. So how... What are the chances of that? Yeah, the absolutely. interception of that. So, yeah, we'll leave it at that story, but, yeah. Well, fantastic, Don. Thanks very much. Now, you've this time, you've really got to go. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.